This podcast is proudly supported by Baseballism, an all baseball related apparel and cloning company for baseball people. Check them out at baseballism.com. It's America's brand. Welcome to the ANA Sports Podcast, Sports Talk, with your hosts, Anthony Cortez and Alex Ashley. And Kevin! Oh, yeah, and Kevin Rowe. What's up, and welcome back to another edition of the ANA Sports Show, episode 108. We are back. Uh, doing another Zoom call. Um, I got the boys with me. I am Anthony Cortez, joined alongside Mr. Alex Ashley. What's up, everybody? And Mr. Kevin Rowe. Hey, hey. And this week, we're we're actually glad to be joined by a good uh, a good friend of Alex's, uh, Mr. Greg. Uh, what was your last name again, sir? Sorry. Garrett. There I go. Greg Garrett. How are we doing today, sir? Uh, doing good, guys. How y'all doing? We're pretty good. Pretty good. Thanks for joining us, man. No problem. All right. So we're going to get into the highlights real quick with, with uh, Alex, and then uh, we'll get into the interview. All right. 10-4. All right, guys. So it was a pretty busy, uh, crazy, pretty busy week in the world of sports. I had quite a few of these. And I knocked it down to about six. We'll start off with the NSWL's Houston Dash won the Challenge Cup. That's the Women's National Soccer League. Uh, this was a one-off tournament held by the league to mark the return of action from the intermission due to the novel coronavirus. Uh, the male equivalent is the MLS's back tournament. Uh, so it was cool to see a team from uh, team from Texas winning that. Uh, next, Kansas City Chiefs guard uh, Laurent Duvenet-Tardif has opted out of the upcoming NFL season. He said, I cannot allow myself to potentially transmit the virus in our communities simply to play a sport that I love. If I am to take risks, I will do so caring for patients. Duvenet uh, actually earned his, do- his doctorate in medicine from McGill University, which is a university in Canada. So he will be, sounds like helping patients um, in, in hospitals on the COVID-19 front. Uh, next up, the New York Knicks are inking a five-year deal with Tom Thibodeau to be the next head coach. We'll see how that goes. Good luck there. I have zero hope. Uh, Good luck, Tibbs. You need it. Yeah, uh, they need They probably need just more than luck, to be honest. Uh, Next up, uh, Mike Ironman Tyson is making his comeback to the ring September 8th when he takes on Roy Jones Jr. in an eight-round exhibition match on September 12th. Oh, no, excuse me, September 8th, but an eight-round exhibition match. Uh, And then shortly after adding the Las Vegas Golden Knights, the NHL is expanding yet again, this time into Seattle, where the Krakens will begin play in the 28-21 season. And if you read... Excuse me, the Kraken uh, will begin their 2021 season. And if you are anything like me and the millions of people on Twitter who read that, the Seattle Karens, uh, you were pleased to find out that it was not um, that. And then last but not least, Michael Jordan becomes the world's first billion-dollar athlete. I don't think. Uh, That's official? Are, yeah, that is official. He is the world's first wow. Billion dollar athlete. I, I don't think I was surprised in hearing that. I always kind of assumed that it would probably have been him, considering his his brand is so big. Um, the only one of the ones I could have thought would have maybe have been like Ronaldo or Messi, who are like world famous kind of a deal. Um, but I don't know if they have brands quite or brand loyalty quite like uh, Jordan does. Right. He's got a brand and he's got a franchise too. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, but it's not a good franchise. <laughs> 
It's still a franchise. Maybe not, but I mean, you still, he's got, yeah, you do make money from it. So, yeah. True. Very true. I just found out that Tim Howard, former uh, star of the U.S. men's national team, just recently played for the Colorado Rapids, owns a team in Nashville, I guess, a soccer team in Nashville, is now a player coach and an owner of that team. I was kind of surprised by that. That seems to be a lot of responsibility on one guy. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, so those are the highlights. All right. I'll let you take it over and introduce Greg since since, uh, you're the one that knows him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm very, very glad uh, that we that we got Greg on the show. I know he's a very busy man. Uh, so I've known Greg for quite a while now. Uh, I met him um, obviously with, with a lot of family, uh, kind of family ties and all that good man, all that good stuff. Uh, Greg is a historian to say the least, and now <laughs> begrudgingly an expert on uh, baseball, uh, baseball in Texas, at least the history of that. So we're really glad to have him on to kind of talk about some of the aspects of that and kind of how that looks and feels and kind of the, 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 the positives of baseball in Texas. Um, so Greg, first off, cause I guess we're all kind of curious, where did your research start? Why, why start researching something like that in, in kind of a, a close knit, uh, place, not baseball as a whole, but baseball in Texas. My first project, I think it got talked about a little bit. I don't know if y'all had a chance to read that article that was in the paper a week or two ago, I'd say maybe Monday. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, was with Pat Kelly. I mean, I've always, my dad's always had me involved in baseball, playing it, and just the history of it. Uh, certain things I was introduced to early, his, his baseball glove that he used when he was a kid didn't look the same as mine. So at the time, I probably didn't put it together that there were historic differences and changes and evolutions with the game over time. But um, it didn't sink in then, but something clicked. Uh, it made me understand that the game used to be different. So that probably lit the fire as far as just enjoying the history of baseball. My dad always had baseball encyclopedia around. Made me read hitting books by like Charlie Lau and Ted Williams when I was growing up and playing ball in school. Um, baseball cards. We collected baseball cards. That was always a big thing in my household. So uh, reverence for the history of it. You know, my dad was a 61 Yanks fan until the Rangers came along in 72. And then he was a diehard Rangers fan from there out. But uh, my first real research project where I dug through newspaper articles and I put together a narrative and a storyline from what I simply found in the newspapers was with Pat Kelly while I was working on my master's at UTSA. And it was during the, he was a, his focus was civil war history. And he wanted us to dig through the paper and take one week out of the civil war and talk about what was happening in that paper that didn't have anything to do with the war. So how was life going on, even though there was a war raging in the country between the North and the South. And I started digging through some of the New York times stuff from that period. And, and I saw that there was baseball being played at like the Legion fields. And this was like this early new England baseball, probably, you know, probably been around maybe 20 years And Elysian Fields, if I'm not mistaken, and I could get corrected on social media by this, 
is where I think ended up the area became Yankee Stadium. And the team that played at Elysian Fields was the Yankees team. But don't quote me on that. I could be wrong on that. I have to dig back through what I was reading. Anyways, I followed this this little – it was like a league that they had up in New England, and they played Jersey and New York and some other teams right in that area. And I followed them through the entire summer of, I think, 1863 and their baseball season that was wow. going on while war was ravaging all around the whole country. You know, everybody was involved. But the way they still wrote about it and the way they used to write about baseball in newspapers really described how this was an escape for these people. While violence and all this was happening and all this politics was happening around them, the ball games was like an escape from that seriousness. It was a spot where everyone could go and just enjoy the game. <laughs> and that stuck with me. And as I began working through that story, I kind of realized that that same story was probably taking place in the minority communities of Texas, which, so I started kind of digging into Mexican baseball and Mexican American baseball and, and it kind of took off from there. And I told Pat Kelly while I was standing with him one day at the Alamo, I said, man, I'm going to write a book about Mexican American baseball in this state at some point in my life. And luckily enough, uh, opportunities flowed my way and the right doors opened up at the right time. And I was able to get on board with a, a group out of California and help start a little series of books by, uh, oh man, Arcadia. Little, it's kind of like photo history books. Y'all may have seen them before. Okay, but yeah. That's that's kind of where it started. And then my job at ITC, they they allowed me a platform to really start digging and and gave me time to really start researching in these communities and going out and gathering oral histories. So, you know, I've been lucky enough to uh, knock on the doors of a lot of people who played in the Spanish American leagues here in San Antonio and throughout South Texas. I've uh, been able to knock on a lot of the doors of people that would have played on on the uh, semi-pro Negro League teams that would have been before integration. And this is even post 47, post Jackie, you know, there was still segregated ball playing, even though the majors were, were integrated. And I've been lucky enough to dig into, you know, German and Czech communities and how farming communities and rural farming communities, late 1800s and early 1900s, used baseball as, as a tool for just uh, a spot, just to take a break, you know, in a, you know, sports. And we can kind of see that going on now. You know, our country's in chaos because we ain't had sports, man. And you know, I, it's kind of how I see it. But I think sports has just always played a big part, and and baseball is what I love. So it's the sport I latched onto, and it's it's got such a deep history and a deep root and a deep place in American fabric and Texas fabric that it just kind of fit into everything I started doing with my career and and my passions and my love and what my dad wanted me to do and. So it's just become a perfect storm at this point. Sorry, that was the long answer. That was perfect. Perfect answer. <laughs> Don't get a historian rambling, dude. <laughs> you might be here a couple of hours. Hey, man, we got some time. Um, okay, so let's let's kind of dive into to one of the things that you, you had mentioned. Um, so correct me if I'm mistaken, but you currently have an exhibit at the San Antonio airport um, that details some of the uh, Negro Leagues in, in Central Texas. Is that correct? Yes. Um, so tell worked, us a little bit about that. Yeah, um, I got the opportunity while I was still working with ITC. I've since been laid off. 
And uh, I was lucky enough to make contact with Deborah Omawal Jarman, who is the executive director for the San Antonio African American Community Archive and Museum, SACAM for short. Um, they've just opened recently when you want to talk about museums. I think it's just been a few years that they've been open, and she just took over in March. Uh, she took over March 13th, 14th, something like that. And um, Bill Girl, who I'd sat with out at uh, <laughs> Missions Baseball Club, he's one of the uh, assistant managers or something like that, kind of the backside operations part of Missions Ball. Mm-hmm. And uh, he lines up all of the uh, organization-specific uh, celebrations they do at the ballpark. So when my buddy Joe Sanchez, who had a big part, him and his family had a big part in the Spanish-American League here in town, and he graduated from Fox Tech. They do a Fox Tech night out, out there every year. Um, the Texas Kidney Foundation, they were wanting to do something for Juneteenth. So – I'm bringing these people up because Joe Sanchez told Bill that I was working on, had done a lot of work on uh, Negro League Baseball here in town. Bill reaches out to me. Deborah had just reached out to him. So it all kind of was a perfect storm. And SACAM really got behind it. Uh, They got behind it more so than ITC has ever gotten behind me since Lupita Barrera left, who was one of my executive directors who retired about, let's say about five or six years ago. And to see the passion and the fire that Deborah had on this project really lit my fire back up. But uh, we've got a killer exhibit. I just did the research on it, the content part of it, sponsored by the Missions um, Baseball Club. It's tough. You can't just say Missions in San Antonio because people might think you're talking about the actual national parks, you know. Right. So the Baseball Club helped sponsor it, Texas Kidney Foundation, and Miss Tiffany Jones. Smith, who's with, uh, she's the CEO, I believe, of the Texas Kidney Foundation. Miss um, Deborah over at SACAM and the airport, of course, they were all involved. Um, I've got what we tried to do because it's the 100 year anniversary of the creation of the first organized Negro League, which was the National Negro League or the Negro National League. Some it's semantics on either way. You see it both ways on occasion uh, being established by Rube Foster, 1920. Now this, you know, a lot of people will hear that and think, well, that's when colored ball started. That's not when colored ball started. Colored ball has been around, you know, I've got some theories. <clears throat> I've just recently seen some stuff uh, that was actually from some slave journals, I think out of Tyler, Texas. And these slaves were writing about, playing ball on a plantation. And I was just starting to open that can of worms up after doing this research, because I think freedmen colonies have a lot to do. And Buffalo soldiers have a lot to do with the organization of colored ball in Texas and throughout the U S. But anyways, um, so we're doing that and it's the hundred year anniversary. And so I wanted to concentrate on the eight, Texas natives who are in Cooperstown that never had the opportunity to play professional ball. So the league hadn't integrated by the time they were done playing. So we're talking about guys like Rube Foster, Willie Wells, um, Smokey Joe Robinson, uh, you know, or Smokey Joe Williams. I mean, 
Um, Andy Cooper, Biz Mackey, one of the greatest catchers to ever play the game, you know, greater than Roy, he mentored Campanella, you know, so a lot of these guys that people kind of pass over because you think about Satchel and you think about Jackie and you think about, you know, Monty Irvins and, and Josh Gibson and some of these guys that, that once the league was kind of rolling, were able to build a really legitimate name for themselves professionally. But prior to 1920, there was a lot of work being put in, you know, and there was organized colored ball here in San Antonio. I've found solid proof of it. I think it's 1889, 1887, something like that. They were playing organized ball at San Pedro Park for Juneteenth celebrations. Wow. <laughs> so a lot of that was just to stay to focus on those eight guys that were so influential um, Rube Foster did so much for baseball. I think he probably did more for baseball than any person in the history of baseball, in my opinion. Um, in, in 1907 through 1919, before he created his league, to be seen as an equal by all the men playing white ball, that was an accomplishment within himself. You know, he spoke with, with I think that he and uh, before Landis took over, and I think that was in 1917, 1918, Tennessee Mountain Landis, Judge Mountain Landis took over. He was either a vehement racist or he was just fulfilling the owner's, you know, obligations and they were vehement racist. So it was, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other. But prior to that, you know, you had uh, Ben Johnson, who was the president of the American League. And you also had uh, – ah, crap, what was his name? Up in – he was coaching – the general manager for the Giants, and his name will come to me. But he and Van Johnson and Rue Foster were working hard to get base, professional baseball integrated. And this is between 1910 and 1917. And I think around 1915, they were a lot closer than people give them credit for being, considering the times. But a few things happened in the press, and then Landis got into office, and it just all got squished. But when 1920 rolled around for Foster to have put that much work in and to see it come to fruition. Um, and then to see the tragedy of, of, of how he ended up dying in a insane asylum and being run out of his own league, you know, um, it made me appreciate all the work that he did. And I, I didn't know that much about him until I started looking into this because my focus has always been on the very local level, you know, small town ball. Uh, I've always wanted to catch that story. That's the story I started on, and that's the story I want to write about. <laughs> but this was my first taste of really studying the national level, which I I, I really haven't ever done. Uh, black, white, it, it doesn't matter, other than just my my basic knowledge of, of Major League Baseball, you know, from just here and there, trivia, whatever it may be, shit you just gather, you know. All I'm right. sure y'all have that kind of crap stored in your heads too. That was <laughs> but yeah, that, that exhibit out there, it focuses on those eight guys and it focuses on local ball and it focuses on barnstorming teams and the semi-pro teams. And there was a whole, there was a whole network going on of color ball prior to integration. And even after integration that, that just needs to have a story told, you know, but that happens in every community. That that's, that's why baseball I feel is so important. So you mentioned a lot of uh, players that are more well-known. I'm, I'm curious if you know 
this San Antonio native. Um, I actually had the pleasure of interviewing this gentleman uh, when I was in elementary school. And he was born in San Antonio. He died in San Antonio. He played for the Chicago American Giants from 1946 to 1949. Um, Clyde or John? What's that? Clyde or John? John? Is that who you're talking about, Mule? John Mule, <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. You know, he was um, – <laughs> I, I didn't get a chance to meet him. I, I missed meeting him by about six months. He passed him and Cleveland Grant passed away pretty close to each other. Um, John's actually uh, in the exhibit that we did. Oh, wow. Uh, he's yep. Yeah, we included him um, in the exhibit. John Miles played a huge role in San Antonio. Him and Cleveland mm -hmm. Grant, John, John to an even further extent. Um, I think he probably mentored more people in San Antonio in – black baseball than probably anybody else. Uh, he was as important a figure as anybody who may have made it to the professional leagues, like after integration. Um, he was recruited. Uh, I want to say Clyde. And I can't remember his last name. And they were good friends. They went to school together and they played together on the giants. And Clyde had a longer, it was like Clyde Williams. I'd have to go dig around for it. But, yeah, John played a huge part in not only in San Antonio baseball, but in um, Texas baseball. I mean, he was the first black player to integrate into one of the South Texas baseball leagues, uh, you know, and, and he was the only black. He was the first black player playing down there. So he broke some barriers. Uh, he's got uh, he's got the professional record for most consecutive home runs. It's just not recognized by major league baseball. Yeah. Like none of the others are. So yeah. Um, unfortunately, like I said, he passed away, uh, man, probably less than a year before I really started getting in to the local scene and, and, and meeting people. But if y'all are interested, I can probably hook y'all up with his nephew and a good friend of mine, Dick O'Neill, who was fabulous friends he spoke at his funeral, if I'm not mistaken. He was fabulous friends with John Miles. Um, Dick O'Neill's one of two men that I know of that were white that played in the professional Negro Leagues. So it was funny because they were sitting together one time, he and John, and somebody came up and asked John Miles, and they had the exact same answer. It said, what did it feel like? to be the first black or the only black in this white league. And they asked Dick the same question about being white and only black league. And they had the exact same answer. And at that point forward, they were just like buddies. I mean, super good friends. So, um, yeah, that's cool that you asked that, man. John Miles played a huge part in San Antonio baseball. Uh, obviously in the black and the east side scene, but just in general, in Texas baseball, he's an important part of the fabric. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it was a, a real big pleasure to be able to interview him. I'm not going to lie, I don't remember too much from that interview. I was, it was second grade back then, so we're talking 22 years ago or something like that. Have, like, did you write a report or something like that on it? I did. I was doing a report for elementary schools. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a shame you don't have that. And I had that. to find someone to interview. And 
my parents had some connections. I don't remember with who, but they were able to get me in touch with uh, Mr. Miles. And I, I just remember how nice he was, how uh, humble he was. And he, I mean, just to give a, an elementary school kid an, an opportunity to sit down with him in person and actually record an interview with him. I, it was the coolest thing ever. That's so, one thing I've, I heard about John was that he, he always had time for people, especially yeah. if they were interested in baseball. Um, what year was that? Oh, Lord, that would have been 97, 98. See, and 97, 98 is when this whole reexamination like of, of, okay, we need to start – lifting these guys up and getting the story of this whole Nero league thing really started to pop. Um, you had, you had a couple of guys in the early nineties and I can't think of his name off the top of my head, but he's got the, I can't remember the exact title of it, the Negro league encyclopedia. And he's a giant in the field, but uh, that was like 92, 93 that he put that out. So 97, 98 is when these guys were really starting to reorganize and come back together and starting to do their their tours and they're starting to get a little more recognition and the story's starting to get out there. So that was cool, man. That was a cool experience for you to be able to chalk up. Absolutely. So Jamie yeah, don't have you don't have the written report. Go ahead. Jamie don't have that written report somewhere. Mom and dad didn't hold on to that for you? Oh, I'm sure they did. My parents are hoarders when it comes to things like that. I would just have the big part. <laughs> If you got him, you you got that report. If you were to show that to Kenny Miles, I guarantee you bring tears to his eyes. Hey, something I'll like that. Dude, something like that is. See, one thing um, about Stakeham that I'm super excited about. I always wanted ITC. I never could understand why I couldn't get ITC to understand the concept of the importance of this story and how how much community involvement we would get if we would allow ourselves to become a repository and a collection point for everything that needs to be talked about and collected for not only black baseball, just baseball in general, because San Antonio has got a huge baseball history with the military history that we have. I'm, I'm very strong believer that military is what spread baseball to Texas. I think that's how baseball got to Texas. That and I think immigrants bringing over their stick and ball games, because um, there was there was forms of baseball being played in most European countries. There's not a culture out there that doesn't have a stick and ball game, and so all of these places in San Antonio, you got is about as multicultural a city as early in United States history as you're gonna find. Not to mention, it was a huge military hub about as early. I mean, we were built. That's, you know, the Bay, Bayar was a freaking military fort before it was anything. Mm -hmm. You want to go back to the first group that settled. It was the church and the fort and the market. And that's what it was. And I, I, I have a strong, and it's the more I talk to people, the more it's getting supported mm -hmm. that. That I think the 1840s was really important in introducing baseball here uh, when we were fighting the Mexican-American War. 
Um, I think a lot of those guys came through from West Point. You started seeing a lot of the generals that became popular during the Civil War coming through Texas. And I think they brought the game with them. Um, I think that that's how it got to the border region. You know, there's stories out there that it went through Cuba and then to Mexico in the 1865 range. I think it was in Mexico or at least on the border region of Mexico with Texas and Rio Grande area, RGV, by the mid to late 1840s, if not no later than early 50s, because it's hard for me to believe a lot of those guys that were in the military retired in places like Brownsville. Brownsville, if I'm not mistaken, was founded in 1850 or 1851. Now, the Mexican-American War was going on 1848 through 1850. I may be off on that. But a lot of those guys that were in the military ended up retiring in places like Brownsville and those settlements along the Rio Grande and marrying into these Tejano families. And it's hard for you to tell me if this dude has a son that he's not going to tell him about baseball. So you have a kid in 52, you know, by the time he's eight or nine years old, so 18 late 1850s, 1860s, it's very plausible that baseball could already have been being introduced by American military down in the deep South Texas region, you know, you know, maybe a decade before this whole Cuba connection they're talking about. I can't remember the ship. There's a ship they talk about that docked in Cuba or something like that. But, but yeah, man, it's, um, it's fascinating when you begin to dig into how important Texas was to this, to the whole story of baseball, especially in the South. Uh, I really believe that Rube, when he was building his network, because he was already playing in Waco and stuff like 1895. So these were all established leagues. And I found a newspaper article actually digging around in the Galveston papers. I was trying to, to I have this old picture of a black team and their uniforms just say GAC on them. So I was on the hunt trying to figure out where the hell these guys were from. And Galveston Athletic Club kept popping into my head for some reason. So I started digging into that. And I'm pretty certain that's where they're from. But as I was digging into that, I ran across an article. And it's like eight, late 1880s or early 1890s. And it's the earliest I've seen of a, a, a colored league being formed that was multi-city. I mean, we're talking, it was Galveston, I think Houston. And it was kind of in that little geographical region of the Gulf Coast right there. I don't know if they got how much further north they got. I'd have to pull the article again. <laughs> but you, I keep running into these little things that, that keep pushing that date of when black baseball was established in Texas. And I, I, I keep finding these little articles on freedmen's colonies where, you know, colonies that were founded by freed slaves. And they're talking about these little te- these little colonies have teams. And it's like, well, shit, man, if, if these colonies got teams and they're freed slaves, then I'm sorry, but I, I have a tough time, too, believing that all this stuff was happening during the Civil War. And all these soldiers were running around and they were playing ball because there's written documentation of these Civil War soldiers 
playing baseball games in the middle of, you know, having to sit for two or three weeks in one spot. I'm sorry, but there's plantation slaves in most of the places where these baseball, these guys were playing ball. Tough for me to not, not believe that these guys weren't picking up or bringing their stick and ball game and seeing the other stick and ball game. I just know there's got to be a lot. There's got to be stuff out there on, on slaves playing ball. And I just think a lot of this minority baseball goes a lot further back than people realize, man. Sorry, I'm getting down rabbit holes with you guys. Man. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. That's Perfect. all good, man. <laughs> but uh, going back to Miles, yeah, I mean, if you can get us in touch with uh, Kenny Miles, yeah. that'd be awesome. Um, yeah, Dick, I think having Dick and Kenny on would be a fabulous show for you guys, and they'd get going. They'd be able to give you all a lot of hardcore good stories of traveling with those dudes. Absolutely, nice. and uh, nice. you're no slouch. You're no slouch when it comes to stories, as it is. Um, so, speaking of stories, Greg, uh, <laughs> <laughs> stories. Obviously, that's what, that's what my wife tells me. That's why she doesn't even she doesn't even get me started on this crap because she knows <laughs> So speaking of stories, uh, so we mentioned John Mule Miles, um, but if a lot of the most casual fans probably won't know that name. So my question would be, who is probably the most prominent, well-known Negro League athlete or uh, Hispanic League athlete that you actually had the pleasure of meeting and like a a little short epitaph or a short story of – something interesting that you experienced with them man i haven't really met any just like famous ball players i know joe lewis he was one of my kerrville all-stars guys played on the blacktown team out in kerrville he got up there around alex rodriguez about six months before he passed away and handed alex rodriguez my business card told him this boy sure does a lot of baseball research you should look him up so I don't know what six degrees of separation there, but personally talking to people, um, Dick's got a pretty, pretty well-known story. Uh, Lefty does with, he's written a book about it and Roy White, Roy White, probably he, he was playing with the American giants for a bit. He toured with the league and all-stars that were out of Hondo. Um, he also played about, 51, 52, he made it up to really low developmental ball with the, uh, at the time, was the Boston Braves. If I'm not mistaken, they were the Boston Braves at the time. They went on to become Milwaukee and then, I guess, Atlanta. Uh, that, and A.D. Carpenter, he, he, he was 93 when I talked to him a few years back. He's already passed away. Roy White passed away. Joe Lewis passed away. Joe Vons, I'm losing a bunch of them, but A.D. Carpenter made it up into the low part of the Dodgers organization. <clears throat> but as far as just meeting people that would jump off the page at you and you know exactly who I'm talking about, I really haven't done that kind of research because I've just wanted to uncover I, – I just – I feel like this town story is is probably one of the – most important historical aspects of telling the baseball story because if you go and you look at pre little league and I don't care if you're talking white, black, Mexican, I don't care what you're talking about. If you look at pre little league, these town teams were kind of the way that people learned how to play baseball. 
And and until Little League was established for minorities, it was the only way they had to learn to play baseball. And if you go and you look at the history of some of these cats like Rube and, and Smokey Joe Williams out of Seguin and Andy Cooper coming out of Gidding, you know, Rube and his brother Bill, they were born in, in, in uh, ah, crap. It's slipping my mind. All, all super small towns. And they looked up. There was a black team that they looked up to, and just like in Kerrville. And when they were 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, they would get out there with those dudes that were, you know, 18 to 35. And that's who taught them baseball. Every one of these dudes started on a town team that um, – and I'm talking – Pre nineteen forties, you know, pre pre little league, pre organized little league. All these dudes started with town teams, or watching their local town team and wanting to be a part of the local town team, getting out there and shagging balls for the local town team. And so I found that that's like the underlying foundation of 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 the historical aspect of baseball. So I've really stuck to that, and I haven't really gotten into. My research has introduced me to people history that I take a lot of pride in and I call some of the giants of the game, you know, like, like working with Roy Doswell at, at the Negro League Museum in Kansas City and him being part of that program, Alex, that you've got a chance to watch. Raymond Doswell is one of the giants right now in research in, in, in Negro League baseball. Um, and and his pre- the president – of, of that museum, the executive director of that museum, uh, Bill, I can't think of his last name off the top of my head, but, you know, being able to communicate with gentlemen like that, um, in a way it kind of, you know, earlier I was joking around before we got on about, I guess, you know, people are calling me a, a, a expert in the field now. Well, I guess that kind of legitimizes what I've done is, is now being able to say I've worked with dudes like that. So, um, I've come a long ways, and I mean, there's still a lot of story to tell, and and I'll dig into the national scene when I I feel like it's it's pertinent or it, it adds to to the story <laughs> I'm looking for. But I really, I really, at some point, I've got several ideas for books, and and they all have to do with with really making people understand how important the local baseball scenes were to Texas communities prior to, you know, 19, pre-1960, that type of thing, before Little League really started. Getting, and they're even, I mean, hell, look at those kids that, that that went to the Little League World Series not too long ago, a few years back from San Antonio. McAllister. Uh, yeah, you know how everybody got behind them. So, you know, that shit is still important to the community, them little kids playing ball like that. And it, it just, um, and I, I just, I, that town team, that, that town team is what we've lost because – you just don't see, you know, like Rick's Cola sponsoring a hardball squad. And, you know, you've got these over 40 teams and stuff like that. But but these town teams were – they gave dudes an opportunity that knew they'd never make it to pro ball to keep playing. And as far as minorities were concerned, it was the only way they could keep playing. And that's what Rube wanted to do. That's why he wanted to create a professional league – 
is so that that kid playing on that town team at 16 doesn't lose sight of the dream that he can continue to play baseball and make a living at it. You know, just he, he didn't want kids to lose sight of the dream just because of the color of their skin. That was the basic reason he wanted to have an organized professional black league is so that kids wouldn't lose sight of that dream of playing baseball. Hey Greg, if we can go back to that, uh, to the, to the article a little bit, I, I had a two part question. Um, it, it kind of talks about you going back to these old sites and I, I know you keep touching base on, on, uh, like your, your, your real passion is with the local is with the local, um, the local game here, San Antonio and how baseball started here. I'm interested, uh, to hear how, so it kind of talks about how, like when you go visit these old sites, these old parks that are no longer there, um, what are you looking for in like when you go in, in, as far as, as from a research point of from a point of view, when you're doing research, when you go to look at these old parks, you know, what exactly are you looking for? And then um, you can answer two part later. But uh, <laughs> the second part is I, I was really interested to see because I, I read a little bit. I read a few pages from the uh, from the book you co-authored co Mexican-American baseball in the Alamo region. Yeah. It's it's a it, like two pages available online. Um, and it talks about how baseball uh, brought communities together because it was really the only place that they had a place to come together. It was like they they went to church and then they they the families went to go watch the kids play. Um, so yeah, for, I mean, first part like w as far as when you go look at these sites and when you go visit these old ballparks that are no longer there, but you know still have some kind of remains. Uh, you know what what are you looking for from a research standpoint? I'm trying to hear what the ghosts are telling me. <laughs> That's about the easiest way for me to put it is because most of these places, if you didn't know, like my research is and, and talking to people is where I've learned the locations of these places. Uh, and, you know, I had people show me, get out and take me on these tours, which I was able to give Vince. But when I'm at them, the first thing I'm looking at is I'm trying to figure out where the dimensions are. Where was home plate? Where was the pitcher's mound? Foul lines, that type of thing. Uh, the second thing I'm kind of looking at, after you kind of start thinking of the dimensions, then you start trying to pull your research into it. And one thing about researching black, early black baseball is you have to do a lot of, of – reading between the lines, a lot of inferring on things. Like I spoke earlier about the article read giving away blue ribbons for several categories, one of them to be the best baseball team. That's all it said. That's the only mention it had about baseball. But from that little thing, it tells me, A, all right, these guys, you, these nine players didn't just come together that day for the very first time on June 19th at San Pedro Park in 1887 or whatever the date was. And it wasn't just one team because they were going to have a tournament because they were giving away a ribbon for the best team. So obviously there's multiple black teams that are going to be playing. So if you've already got multiple black teams that have organized to play on a very important holiday where everybody's going to be at, that tells me that these dudes have 
done some organizing prior to that day. Uh, they knew where the teams were. They didn't just go out and get what 45 guys and all the equipment to play for the very first time. And everybody know the rules and at San Pedro park on Juneteenth that day. So you really have to read between the lines, which is what you've got to do when you go to these old locations. Cause a lot of them have changed so much. Um, one thing that I, and I didn't really, it didn't click the first time I kind of went around as I took bits and, and Ken, the photographer to these spots for that article, we went to Brooksdale, which is at the corner of Brooksdale and MLK right across from MLK Academy right there at Freedom Bridge. And then we popped down to Wheatley Heights, which is two blocks uh, directly, I want to say west from where the Brooksdale home plate was into the neighborhood. So those two teams, obviously, Wheatley Heights All-Stars and whoever was playing at Brooksdale, because Brooksdale didn't have a, a home team. You had San Antonio Black Indians playing there. They had multiple teams playing at Brooksdale. So that obviously was going to be a hub. The And then I didn't realize until I plugged it into the map and we went over to Lincoln Field where the Lincoln Field Athletics were playing by the 1920s. It was only six minutes away. So boom, that immediately tells me, well, this was a hub in the 1920s for the African-American community. If you've got three major teams or three major areas that they're playing ball at, you're going to have uh, – there's going to be juke joints most of the time by these places. There's going to be some type of music because just like you said, and this is true in every single group of people I have done my research with, whether it's German, Czech, Mexican-American, African-American, I don't care who it is. You went to church on Sunday, you got out of church – you ate lunch, you went to the ball field, you played a doubleheader at the ball field. After the ball field, you went down and you danced with your girl on Sunday night. And you had a little bit of barbecue and a couple of adult beverages. It happened every Sunday. happened at West End Lions Field in New Braunfels. It happened at Foster Field here in San Antonio, Brooksdale. Of, of community. Uh, you know, me and my buddy Cornwell, Jake Cornwell up at Oklahoma State, we got to talking even about, like, y'all heard of the Chitlin circuit and stuff, right? The, like, in the jazz circuit from that would run from Kansas City all the way down to New Orleans. And then the Chitlin circuit was like the blue circuit that ran Louisiana, the southwestern part of Arkansas, over through Oklahoma, and then down through Texas. Well, when you begin to start overlaying, like, this jazz circuit and these baseball circuits that these uh, – Negro League teams were playing, um, and even these semi-pro teams and and the leagues that they had here in Texas, and then you put it on the jazz circuit, you start seeing that these things are overlapping. So you're starting to see this, this story being told of where these pockets and hubs for these communities were, and it was the exact same way in the Mexican-American community. You know, Felipe Delgado down in, in New Braunfels, he came back from World War II, and that's exactly what he built. You know, like my people don't have a place to go and play baseball and hang out. So he took care of it and he solved that and it became a hub for the community. And it just shows how important that baseball is to the fabric, or at least it used to be. It feels like we've really gotten away from baseball being that important to us, unless you're just a diehard, you know. But it everybody was wrapped up. It was the only game in town. 
You know, you have the NFL, you have the NBA, you have MLS, you have PGA, you have all these other things, NASCAR, you know, you had baseball and, and baseball was an aspect of every community's life in Texas. I don't care where you were, I don't care who you were, I don't care what your background was, I don't care what race you were. It was, it was as important to me or in my opinion, as, as religion are very close behind it. Absolutely. And what was the second part? <laughs> well, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but I, yeah, like, like baseball locally bringing communities together. And, but I mean, you, I mean, you hit it is, it's like these guys, they woke up, went to church, then you went to the ball field, played a double header. We ate some barbecue and then you went dancing. Another another thing that was cool about these spots and is that they integrated long before anybody talked about it. You know, these teams were playing against each other. They may not they may not have played in the same leagues together, but you had white teams and black teams playing each other in San Antonio. You had white teams and Mexican teams playing each other in San Antonio. Helen Kerbill, they would bring in they had a dude that came in and pitched for them. Uh, Tommy, I can't think of his last name, but he went on to be the police chief in Kerrville. White guy. Bill Haynes, who was the general manager of the Kerrville All-Stars, he didn't give a shit what you look like. You could throw the ball on Sundays for him and he could win. He had your ass out there on the mound. So we're talking, this is 1953, 1954. <laughs> this is before Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, Kerrville Independent School District had a forced integration, but that was in 1960. before the city moved towards integration that you were seeing it provide a space for the communities that baseball wasn't being allowed to serve due to the illnesses of the men that ran the game at the time. It also provided a spot where the seed was being sown, was being nurtured, and it was growing heartily as far as integration was concerned and people getting along together. You know, you could almost you could almost do it, and I don't really want to get into the big P word here, but you could almost do it with politics nowadays. You know, it, it may have been it used to be race back in the 40s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Now everybody's so pissed off at each other over their politics that it's nice to be able to just sit down and watch a baseball game and shell that crap for a little while, you know? And I think that's kind of what it provided, not only to the communities that needed a space, but it also provided a place for that seed of integration to begin to grow and people to really understand that, that there was no reason why these guys shouldn't be able to play professional baseball. And it, soaked into society i mean that soaked into those little communities you know those kids went back and talked to their parents about stuff i've, I've had oral histories about guys going and talking to their dads about why they wouldn't let their buddy joe lewis through the front door of the restaurant you know why you make joe go through the back door and he ran his boy out ran him out of the house so these conversations were getting started in these communities because of baseball you know, so it, it, it really was a double-edged sword, and in a good way, you know, it, it, it sliced the space for those minority communities to have, but it also 
cut open that wound of racism and segregation that, that, that I think it played a major role at the time as important as baseball was to the fabric of society on all levels that it played a major role in integrating America. Yeah, no, I think, you know, whether it be, you know, famously like Jackie Robinson or whether it be some of these grassroots communities, it's, it's always good to see that baseball has been one of those games that really helped move the U S forward, uh, in a lot of ways. Um, well, Greg, I just want to say, first of all, thank you so very much for taking the time out to kind of hang out with us for a little bit, to talk baseball for a little bit. I know I speak for everybody here when I say, you know, we're, we're baseball fans first and foremost. Um, but then also for, you know, sharing everything that, you know, all the time that you've taken to, to learn all this stuff, to do all the research, to, to kind of dive into places that people haven't before, like you said, to, to tell stories um, that need to be told that haven't, you know, I want to thank you for that as well. Um, My next focus is out towards highway 90 in Medina County. So I'll keep y'all in the loop. If anything, hey. pops up. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm down for that. All right. But, um, well, do you want to give a quick shout out where you can like find your book, all that good stuff? Oh man. Arcadia publishing company's website. Probably. Um, you could just, you could just Google, uh, Mexican American baseball in the Alamo region and it should pop up. I saw it was uh, available on Amazon for twenty one ninety nine. If I'm not, yeah. It, yeah if I had some copies left, I'd shoot y'all some, I might be able to run some down. If I run a few copies down, I'll shoot y'all a few and sign it. Nice. Yeah, awesome. yeah. But, okay, yeah man, that was a project that popped out. I don't want to get started, but that was a project that popped in when I was part time. I didn't even make any money off that project. Okay. Right on. That's a shame. Yeah, we well, all went back a, into those books, which that's cool. I don't mind giving money for baseball. It's not all about the money, right? Yeah, <laughs> not, not in my world, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Greg, will you give Kim our best, and uh, we'll talk to you soon, okay? Hey, you got it. Anthony, Kevin's good meeting you, fellas. We'll see you around, all right? Good to meet you, Greg. Likewise. Thank you so much, man. Take care. Boo Astros. <laughs> Go Red. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, be good, man. I'll talk to you soon, okay? Yes, sir. We'll see you soon, Greg. Later, buddy. All right, bye. All right, that was All Mr. Right. Greg Garrett. Interesting stuff, man. Yeah, it's amazing what he's been able to do. Um, you know, I met Greg years and years ago when I lived in San Antonio, uh, the, the, my first tenure uh, in San Antonio. He's actually the one that got me um, – a docent position at the Institute of Texan Culture. And it was always crazy to see how like into his work and dedicated to his work that he is. So I can only imagine the kind of effort that he put into this, knowing that number one, baseball is his first passion and history is his second. So he, he, he knows too much. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad thing. <laughs> He's actually the one who got me on the, on track to, to, to do the history major. And really? hopefully to move on to get my uh, I masters. That. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, like well, it doesn't boys, surprise I... me that he knew John Mule Miles, and I think it'll be really cool if he can get us in touch with his nephew. That'd be absolutely. Cool. That'd be cool. Yeah, I'll reach yeah. out to him after the show, and well, you know, I, gotta, I still got to cook dinner for for him and Kim, his wife, one of these days. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we'll we'll I'll get in touch with them, and we'll we'll figure something out. So, 
Cool. Uh, boys, so I figure we can do uh, – we can skip the NFL this week and we can just kind of talk week one MLB. But before, uh, before we do that, let's give a shout-out to our friends real quick at Baseballism. They're an all-baseball-related clothing company for baseball people. If you're a baseball fan, you should be wearing Baseballism. It's that simple. It's America's brand, the official off-the-field brand for baseball. Visit Baseballism.com, and while you're there, use our code AASports. Our initial is A-A-S-P-O-R-T-S for a uh, 15 – that's one 5% discount off your first order. Free shipping on orders of $100 or more. So if you want to go spend a lot, it's easy to do with them. You get a hundred, or you get free shipping on $100 or, uh, or more. Masks are available in several different styles. Uh, Field of Dreams collections are now available as well. Stay-at-home shirts are still available. Babe Roof collections, ma- Major League collections. Uh, there's new, shirt, new shirts and hoodies with built-in masks, sweats, caps, shorts, accessories. All great, comfortable, and fast material. Are all great, comfortable, and really uh, fast shipping. You'll get your stuff within two or three days. Um, but yeah, visit them at baseballism.com. Visit their uh, visit their brick and mortar stores all over uh, all over the country. They they got uh, so it's Irving, Texas, Atlanta, uh, the Field of Dreams site, um, a few others. Just go visit baseballism.com, and they'll have uh, they'll have all the stores listed there. Um, but yeah, baseballism uh, it's America's brand. Uh, week one in the MLB. Our thoughts. I mean, Rangers can't catch a brick to save their lives. We just can't have nice things. My first major thought is I'm seeing a lot of inconsistency from pitchers. Uh, You'll see a lot of these starting pitchers. They're on pitch counts. They're only going six innings, seven innings at the most. Uh, But we're seeing a lot of high-end, top-tier starters struggle or get injured here right at the get-go. And it's I'm wondering how much of that has to do with the expedited summer camp. I would imagine some. Um, but, I mean, most most teams were playing actually like exhibition summer games, like inter-squad games during summer camps. Like, like they only they, – Right, correct. but it was only two, three weeks, and spring training is usually six. Right. If you include when pitchers and catchers report. Right. So not enough time cut, to No. Not enough time not to enough prepare. Time to get the reps in and make sure they're conditioned right for a full season. Right. Or partial season, but to go full tilt 100% effort, yeah, I I can see how a lot of these starters are getting hurt like Steven Strasburg and that nerve issue in his hand. Uh, Clayton Kershaw is back, even though he's had those issues before. Uh, Corey Kluber with the shoulder uh, shoulder inflammation, I think it was, right, for you guys? And then, uh, of course, the big one, Justin Verlander, going out for at least two weeks with a forearm strain. But Kluber's bigger, man. He's out four weeks. being a full year. Do what? Kluber's bigger. He's out four weeks. He's pretty much mm-hmm. – they already said his season's pretty much done. If he does come back, he's coming back as a reliever. Mm-hmm. Uh Forearm strain is usually code for elbow issues with Verlander, which probably means the year, and that's what I'm afraid of. So, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you're talking a two two-time AL Cy Young award. Uh, I think Kershaw was a three-time National League Cy Young, or was he only two? I think he's at least three-time, right? And then I know two for sure, then maybe three. Yeah. And then you're talking Strasburg last year's World Series MVP. I mean, you're talking like these frontline starters, man. It's 
it's big, I'm wondering how far it's going to go because I don't think we've seen the end of it. I think only I've, I've I've only seen one starter go a complete game so far, and it was it was Kyle Hendricks for the Cubs, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. That was impressive. I couldn't believe that when mm-hmm. I saw that. I was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's 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 interesting. Not only even just the the injuries early on, but just how some teams are kind of coming out of the gate. Cause with a shortened season, obviously a hot start is essentially everything. Um, it's one of those things where if you don't come out swinging, if you don't come out throwing strikes, then, you know, you, you very well may be in trouble for the rest of the season, but to see these teams that historically, you know, either start hot or don't, but with the importance of this early start to see teams like, San Francisco take two out of four against the Dodgers to see, you know, the, the Marlins at two and one at top of the national league East, which granted again, we're like three, four games in is still a pride. They took down the Phillies, you know, and Phillies only won one of those three games. Washington nationals are, you know, one and three and they're the defending champs. The Oakland A's three and one. Um, you know, you, you look at the Boston Red Sox one and two, uh, Chicago White Sox, who, you know, with as much young talent as they have, should be, you know, top of the central right now, one and two. Uh, you know, even the, the Kansas City Royals right now, as we speak, are up by quite a bit. It's uh, 12 to six, top of the ninth on Detroit. So they're about to go two and two and be right in the middle of that central. So if any of these, like, mid-grade tier teams who – you know, are, are really young and talent have, you know, there's not so much established routine and repetition that they can kind of adjust how they work. I think they have a pretty good shot of even making the play, especially with an expanded playoff. They have a pretty good shot of making it and then doing some damage. So it's interesting to see how this start with so few games in the season kind of already affect the outlook of the season for these teams four games in. Right. In fairness to the White Sox, I mean, they are going against probably the third best team in the American League in the Twins. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's where they lost two of the three. But even so, then you brought up the uh, the Miami COVID-19s. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Shit, the Baltimore Orioles are 2-1, and one, you know? Yeah. Nobody's 3-0, or nobody's 0-3 either. No. Nope. First time ever, I think they said. Yeah. The strangest thing was when I looked at the standings after Saturday and of the 28 teams, no, sorry, 26 teams that had only, no, it was 28, 28 teams that had only played two games, 22 of them were already one and one. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And only three teams have yet to lose a game. And then after Sunday's game, there was not a single team that was undefeated. So. It was quick. And I also see some mashings early on, too. I mean, Atlanta destroyed the Mets in their last game. It was like 14, 15 to like one. Like I said, Kansas City is up 12 to six right now. I would have to agree. It does definitely seem that the shortened offseason definitely favors the batter so far. I wonder if that will change at all. I doubt it. I think it. it'll change some once starting pitchers get more into their groove and actually go deeper into games. Because you're not going to see a lot of these pitch limits, innings limits that you see in other seasons because it's it's a condensed season. The only reason mm-hmm. we're seeing them shorter now is because they're not fully <coughs> stretched out. Right. So I think right. in about two, three weeks, we're going to see 
some probably phenomenal performances by some starting pitchers, assuming they don't all get hurt. Seriously. Right. Well, I mean, if you look at the the, the Rangers uh, Colorado series, I, you know, you could call it phenomenal if you want, but they were pitching duels every game for the first five, six, even seven innings. I mean, now, granted, not everybody will call that phenomenal. They could just call it terrible offense, and fine, I'll take that. You may want to start that part over because we lost you at we. If you look at the Rangers Colorado series, and then you froze. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, can you hear me now, though? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay, perfect. Sorry. Um, if you look at the, the Rangers uh, Rockies series, all of those games, the first six innings, five, six innings, sometimes seven innings, they were all pitchers' duels. So I think you, it's weird. And some teams you have already outstanding performance. Colby Lewis tied for the most strikeouts by a Rangers pitcher opening day. You know, there's a guy who was out of the majors for like five, six, seven, eight years. He came in and pitched for the Rockies and did well. So, like, there are some guys who are who are really killing it. You look at Jacob DeGrom, he's still killing it. You look at a lot of these, you know, big aces, they're still doing well. If anything, I'm more worried about their injury. But it's these bullpen guys, these reliever guys. That is where I think the disparity really is when it comes to who's more prepared for the season. Because you think about it, starting pitchers get how much time to prepare. You get how much time to practice. Relievers get, like, this much. You know what I mean? And you have to be really successful for this amount of time. And if you're not, well, you lose your spot, you know? Especially with the added change that you have to face three batters. I find that to be really interesting. And I think that will have a big effect on how teams move forward with a bullpen. Right. Yeah, but I think the struggles that we're seeing with bullpen early on is more of inexperience. And you can look at – I'll look at the Astros, for instance. Of the people in their bullpen – about two-thirds of them have very minimal major league playing time. I think of the I think it was the last four or five that actually made the roster on the bullpen side for the Astros had mm-hmm. six total games of major league experience coming into the season. So it I think a lot of what we're seeing is inexperience, not so much conditioning. Because in the long run, I think starters have to actually get take longer to get ready for a season because they have to get the stamina and endurance ready for the regular season. The relief pitchers, while they have to get a little more stamina than they have in the past because of the three-batter limit, mm-hmm. they still only have to go a minimum of three batters. Right. have to be perfect for those three batters, though. <laughs> Speaking of rule changes, uh, the first game on – or the last game played on Friday was the first game that went extra innings with the new rule, mm-hmm. which states if you go into the 10th inning or later, you start the inning off with a batter on second. Mm-hmm. What is y'all's take on that rule? And, and do you think it's intriguing? You like it? You don't like it? What? I don't like it, but I get why they're doing it. It just y- y'all know me, traditionalist based when it comes to baseball. Just I don't I don't like it. But if you're trying to speed up the game, if you're trying to to not have eighteen inning, nineteen inning games, you know, you better your chances of scoring a run because they they scored on like it was a they didn't even have an official at bat for that game, right? For that or for that last inning to that, for that tenth inning, I read it was like a sack bunt, a sack fly, and then no, no, no. Okay. That first game ended in a, a walk off grand slam. 
Oh, okay. Well, then that was another game. Sorry. Um, yeah, that was impressive too. That hit like that was that was like that must have felt good. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> that felt good. You know. <clears throat> but it was interesting to see some of the, um, some of the chess match with it. You know, because it's it makes things a little more difficult. One of the fun, interesting things they found was that at Angel's first half of that inning. And Joey Atani had uh, was on second, and I don't remember who was batting. I think it was Fletcher or someone grounded out to second. However, mm-hmm. they didn't throw it to second. They caught him over at third because I guess he hesitated. No, no, he, he ran. Was, that was just the, the initial throw was straight to third. The way he hit it with the, like if anything else had been normal, that they would have thrown it to first, no problem. But because of the situation, and because I think they thought that he wasn't expecting it. They threw it to third automatically. He didn't hesitate. As soon as he cracked that bat, he took off the third, but that's just where the throw went initially. It went straight to third. He had no idea he was, because uh, again, it was a hit to the right side. I think it was hit to first base. So from first base to third base, and Otani had no idea it was coming. He had no idea it was coming. Speaking of Otani. Interesting, because the analysts were saying that he did not go at the crack of the bat, but I'd have to watch that replay again. Because yeah. I remember watching it because I was, like, confused. I was like, why did you even – like, how did you get thrown out? That wasn't a hard – like, that wasn't a soft enough hit for you to move. Like, that wasn't a base knock. I don't know why he moved initially. But, I mean, he was probably four, five, six steps. Like, I mean, it, it looked like he took off immediately from, from the replays that I saw of that. Okay. Speaking of pitchers getting rocked, Otani couldn't get it out of the first inning, right? Yeah. He didn't get an out. He didn't get an no. out. No, he didn't get Not an out. Not a single out. Wow. Which sucks because I have him on one of my fantasy teams. <laughs> I love, mm. ah. Can I you doing fantasy? 20, Speaking of. I am doing baseball fantasy. Uh, wow. Yeah, that that no out performance gave me a minus 27 on his day. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. uh, speaking of the extra inning rule, this is as far as I I, I actually – I. I really enjoy that, number one. Um, I think it solves a lot of the, the quote-unquote evils that the MLB is facing as far as how long games can potentially go. I think that's kind of one of the major complaints, and I think that this is a great way to help resolve that in kind of a way that still makes you have to perform baseball actions in order to win, but you still have a little bit of a faster pace in doing it. Um, the second thing, I think, is just how much strategy actually goes into it. So when I was uh, covering the, the missions these past couple of weeks, and I'll do that um, when they come back here Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, um, they, they the TSCL is doing the same rule. They have a runner on second. So I got to watch firsthand what pitchers were going to do when they had that opportunity. Is it do you bunt them over, sock fly in? Is it just swing away? You know, you saw, you know, uh, Joe Madden go, well, you know what? I think I need more than just one run. So we're not going to bunt. We're going to swing and we're going to try to move guys and get guys on base. Um, you know, kind of the same thing happened a little bit for the Oakland A's. They got guys on base, walk off grand slam. Everybody goes, I'm happy. They didn't need all four to win, but they got all four to win it anyway. So there's a lot of strategy that kind of goes into a lot of decisions that you have to make. And it's slow, or it shortens up the amount of time that it takes to, to complete the game. So whereas, yes, for a lot of things, you know, I think we all share we're very traditionalist in how baseball should be played. I think this is a great adaptation 
And to be honest, I wouldn't be upset if, if they if they kept that, you know. Um, I know it seems kind of, you know, Bush League seems kind of juvenile to, to some, but I think this is a great way, like I said, to expedite it, still have the same amount of, you know, strategy and, and really kind of, you know, move move the game forward to some degree. Everybody likes small changes. Everybody likes the NFL. They make a lot of changes, you know. So I, I think it's a, a good move in my opinion. That's why why I kind of went, it's intriguing. Because I, I don't know if I'm in love with it yet. And I don't know if I hate it yet. Uh, I mean, initially, I was like, uh, I'm like you, Anthony, traditional. So I'm, initially, I'm like, don't change the rule. But after seeing some of the, like I said, the chess match piece of it, the strategic part of it, I'm kind of intrigued. But I haven't fallen in love quite yet. I, I'll let you know after the... Uh, the Astros get their first walk off, and uh, <laughs> with okay. But to be rules. fair, walk off and loss. Tell us after a walk off and a loss. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they See won't lose them. They'll never lose uh-huh. them. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so I, what uh, else? Uh, oh, go ahead. I was about to say. Was, let's talk about the elephant in the room now, shall we? Well, I would first want to know what your most surprising storyline is so far outside of the very obvious blue, orangey elephant uh, in the room. Um, what's the most surprising thing that you guys have seen so far outside of outside of that? And I don't think it's even surprising, but like, what's the most surprising thing so far? MLB wise, talking about because their colors aren't orange anymore. Oh, that's right. They're what, what are they? Blue and black or something? What are they? I don't so know. They, teal, they, black, and I think those red highlights. Anyway, terrible. it doesn't um, even matter. But yeah, as far as MLB is concerned, let's go, uh, Anthony. What's your what's your f- most what's the biggest surprise for you so far in the MLB? Um. I guess it would have to be, um, and this is, I mean, this isn't even a big, kind of going to uh, the, the cutouts of the, of the fans in the stands, but I was really surprised that when I was, and I mentioned this to Kev, I was really surprised when I was watching the Cubs and Brewers. I, I just don't know how I feel about it, but when I was watching the Cubs and Brewers, Kyra Schwarber hit a home run. Um, and they had CGI fans in the stands in like in the in the seats, um, and me and Lauren were watching it, and um, we were just both like, "What?" I was like, "I don't know. I just I just don't know how I feel about it." But I mean, I won't use that. But I guess pitchers getting rocked and pitchers getting hurt, like Ver- Verlander going down, Kluber's both are probably out for the season. I know if JV immediately said, "Oh, it's only two weeks." Well, yeah, we'll talk to you in two weeks, but. It's just like both those guys are huge for their respective teams. And it's like, what does that say about those teams now? Like, at, like you, you and me, Rangers fans, like we know we can never catch a break. I mean, that's, that's whatever. Astra, yeah. Um, but I guess, yeah, pitchers getting rocked early. Otani couldn't even get an out. I didn't even know he couldn't give it an out. I thought it was just, he couldn't get out of the first inning, <laughs> but yeah. But I mean, yeah. it, I like seeing some of these comeback stories, man. Cespedes coming back after two mm-hmm. years, hitting a home run on an opening day. Yeah, he's 
he's only batting 200 right now, but um, just to see him back on the field after two years. Uh, Lance McCullers Jr. coming back almost, after almost two years off and mm-hmm. getting a win in his first start. We're seeing a few of these throughout the the league of players who haven't played in a, a year or two, a couple of years, and they're doing well. Right. See, mine's just got to be simply the the young talent for some of these teams being able to adjust so well, not needing so much you know warm up routine, like really kind of shining a little bit. You look at teams like the Padres who are up there right now. You look at teams like the Marlins who are up there right now. Uh, you know, Oakland's up there right now. Young guys, you know, uh, Tampa Bay's up there. But just these guys that you wouldn't expect quite really to to be up in their division are making kind of waves right now. And in a, in a season that, you know, your start, like I said, is everything. It's kind of interesting to see, like, can you either A, keep this up, or B, ride this long enough to get to the postseason for the first time, maybe even in – an X amount of time because I would like I would like to see what the Padres could do if they made it to the playoffs. I would like to see what the Rockies could do if they made it to the playoffs. Playing in you know in Coors Field during the playoffs, I mean that's that's going to be a fucking fireworks show with how many home runs are going to be hit in that stadium. So it'd be fun didn't to see. Didn't I tell you in our last, uh, didn't I tell you in our last prediction? Watch out for the Padres. Come on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, watch out for the Mets too. That uh, I think they're gonna. Uh-huh. I think they're gonna do really well. Um, we've seen them. You know, play great. We've seen them give up 15 runs. So if they can just stay kind of consistent, that's playoffs, and that's good pitching in the playoffs. So yeah, it's just interesting. I, I, I was kind of surprised by who exactly started off hot and who exactly, you know, kind of didn't. I guess. Because um, yeah, again, right now, what's up? Alex, real quick, this is off subject, but do you have a do you have that Ethernet cord you can plug in? It told us earlier. You're I did. Oh, you did. Okay. I did. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's plugged in. Cool. Sorry, I finished um, your thought. I'm sorry. No, you're good. No, but yeah, I'm just it's interesting to see who started off hot and who didn't. Yeah, nobody's really started off hot. I mean, we said. I mean, if you get off to a slow start, you're done. But I mean, it's it's pretty even across the board right now. I mean, you there's some. T- I mean, what Padres are three and one. Astros are three and one. Athletics are three and one. Yankees are three and one. Or no, excuse me, not Yankees. Tampa Bay is three and one. Um, there's some guys that look. It's after four. There's some guys that look good. Astros have plus thirteen run differential. Tampa Bay is plus eleven. Uh, let's see. Padres are plus twelve. Dodgers somehow are plus twelve, but yet still two and two. I think that's very Dodger esque with them. Um, but yeah, so I just find that interesting. But anyway, so on to well, that's very. Uh, I think that's more indicative of the Giants of they're going to win those. The games that they win are going to be very close, or they're going to get blown out. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> and the Giants are interesting this year too. They're all young people in a very interesting situation. So I was about to say I like I don't know anybody on that team since I know uh, Buster Posey opted <laughs> out, except mm-hmm. for. Mike Yastrzemski. <laughs> right. Oh, and Drew Smiley for me. I know Smiley. Uh, oh, yeah, Brandon, Smiley, too, yeah. Brandon Crawford, too. Crawford was a part yeah. of those World Series Of course, teams. yeah. He doesn't go away. Uh, and Pence <laughs> doesn't go away either, it seems. Pence does not go away. Um, he came back, but yeah. Yeah, well, fair, but <laughs> he didn't go away for long. Okay, I so I know a few 
people on that team now that you mentioned them. I just can't think of them right off the top of my head like that. No, but other than that, <laughs> a lot of a lot of new pitchers, a lot of new faces. Um, you know, they have some really good prospects that are going to come up, especially at that catcher's position. So they almost didn't even need Posey. Billy Park um, man, is going to be good. Yeah, Park is going to be real good. But anyway, so on to what we were talking about a little bit ago, the the <laughs> proposed elephant in the room, elephant. I guess. Yeah. Um, so for those of you who don't know, those of you who are not. Uh, uh, will we finish the season? Will we finish the season? I think so. I I do. I want I want to say yes, but I I don't have very much faith in it. So those of you that don't know, if you're living under a rug or don't pay attention to baseball, in which case, why the hell are you listening to us? Uh, <laughs> the Miami Marlins had four players test positive on Sunday. On Monday, early Monday morning, it was reported that eight more players and two coaches also tested positive for COVID nineteen. They are currently staying in. Philadelphia right now after the three game set with the Phillies. Um, they are, their home game was canceled today, tomorrow as well. And the Phillies and Yankees game was postponed for today while they uh, fumigate and sterilize the visitor locker room. So the question has been all over sports, all over ESPN. What does this mean for baseball? Will it continue? And we actually got a uh, quote from Rod Manfred about 30 And this is quoting from what he said on MLB Network this evening was, we built protocols anticipating that we would have positive tests at some point during the season. Uh, The protocols are built to allow us to play through these pauses. We believe the protocols are adequate to keep our players safe. Um, If the testing results are acceptable, the Marlins will resume play in Baltimore on Wednesday against the Orioles. Um, But he doesn't see the outbreak as a nightmare scenario. Um, Quote, I don't... I don't put this in the nightmare category. It's not a positive thing, but I don't see it as a nightmare. That's why we have the expanded rosters. That's why we have the pool of additional players. A team losing a number of players, making it completely non-competitive, would be something we would have to address and have to think about making a change. Our first concern is the health of the players and the families and making sure we do everything possible to minimize the spread of the virus to our employees. I remain optimistic. The protocols are strong enough that it will allow us to continue to play even though an outbreak like this, even through an outbreak like this, and complete our season. Um, So that being said, if it left the team unable to compete, so if this was the Yankees and they had 12 players test positive, would they have to cancel the season <laughs> since they're a competitive team and the Marlins are not? I don't think they'd have to cancel the season, but at that point he'd call it an emergency. Like at that point he'd have to be like, oh, shit, what do we do? With the Marlins, I'm, pretty, I'm sure they're like, it's the Marlins. We can figure this out. I don't know what we're going right. to do, but we can, we can figure this out. Yeah, yeah, I feel like it's one of those things where there is a different sense of urgency because of the quality of team that's that, that is unfortunately um, infected right now, or at least a majority of a lot of the team is infected right now. 
Um, but I, I kind of agree. I don't see this as a nightmare situation quite yet. I think if you saw like two or three other teams catch it, I think if you saw the teams that they started to play against, if you look at the, you know, the, the, the visitors dugouts, you start seeing guys catch it, you know, who didn't even play in that series, who didn't play in the immediate following series. That's when you start seeing nightmare situations when you start seeing it spread rampantly. Um, but I think this is one of those things where this is kind of a little bit, not, I don't want to say expected. It's not quite the right word, but I think that they're prepared for something kind of like this. There's no, if X players on this team get this, this is what I'll do. But I think they left it vague enough for them to be able to figure out what this problem is. Right, exactly. To, to, to allow them some, some wiggle room and some breathing room to do the right thing at the right time. And that's why I don't think this is a season ender. I think this is one of those things where this is a perfect example and I will regret saying this, I'm sure, but kind of the perfect team for this to happen too, a little bit, um, that they will learn from this exact moment and be able to handle it better if it should arise again later in the season. But it's almost kind of good that it happened early because number one, these guys are going to get the utmost care. These guys are going to get treatment. They're going to get constant testing. They're going to get the ability to isolate themselves are going to be well taken care of because again, they are assets. They are money makers to some degree. Um, so they're going to have the utmost care, fortunately for them and their families. It's unfortunate that it happened, but it, you know, these are athletes. They're in great shape. They will be okay. Knock on wood. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that having this happen early on is good because it will teach them exactly what they need to do moving forward. And again, I don't think this is the season. I think you wait a little bit, you pause some teams, you pause some events. And again, I don't think you'd actually push and postpone for too long, but you have a couple double headers here and there. And I think, I think you'll be okay. Kev, you got anything else? No, I mean, I, I agree with you. I don't think this is a season ender. Uh, I don't know if I'd call it, it – it may not be nightmare, but it's definitely not a good dream. <laughs> no. uh, it's like on that point, a nightmare is when you're already falling to your doom. The, we're right on the edge of the cliff right now. <laughs> yeah. I think if you see one or two more teams have an outbreak like this, you might have to call the season. And I don't think it's something that, okay, let's pause the season for two weeks. There's not enough time anymore. They they've they took all their time doing their negotiation, quote-unquote. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because time's gone now. It's this or nothing. If you have to stop the season, they're not going to finish. I have to agree. And I know we texted about it earlier, and I, I know, Alex, you said, you know, I mean, the MLB – they could, they could figure it out if they really wanted to. There's too much money on the line. But, I mean, I kind of agree with Kev. I mean, you've pushed the season back long enough. You can't push the World Series back into November. You know, what if you play in New York? You can't, you can't play baseball in New York in November, December, whatever it is. You know, it's just uh, – Thank God for neutral sites. I, you can figure it out. They can figure it out. They're smart. That's why they're in the position that they are. I think if they really needed to do it and really wanted to do it, they could figure it out. That's too much money on the line. Uh, see, if they were going to do neutral sites, they would have done that 
original plan, Bubbles. And you know what? An issue at that point. They were the they were the original league to say it. Let's do a bubble. They went away from it. Well, guess what? The two leagues that are starting the bubble are actually doing it successfully. Mm -hmm. I know. Trust me. I I don't like the way they're doing it, but I think you can change things. Things can change. Yeah. Now, granted, they haven't started those leagues yet, but so far, looking good. No positive tests. Well, MLS has started, and no far, no positive tests so far. Exactly, bubble. NHL. Mm-hmm. NHL. NHL, NBA, MLS, and mm-hmm. WSL. And we're not talking. And I mean, you're talking soccer and basketball are right in heat of the of the epicenter of this epidemic right now, or mm-hmm. the pandemic right now, and. And they're still running. They're still staying healthy. Mm-hmm. So the other, the other big one out there already said there's no plans for bubbles in the works. So I don't see how you can't even consider a bubble. But anyway, so that's a topic for another day. I will say this much. To make it logistically possible for a football team to do it, a lot harder than a basketball team. Obviously. I agree obviously. with that, yeah. Obviously. But, yeah, that one would be tougher. We can do a couple hub cities, but I don't think it would work quite the same way. I mean, you, you could. It's just the amount of people, though. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, yeah. Got, I mean, you're talking seven, eight times more people in the NFL than the NBA. Oh yeah, at least. And soccer would be the same. <laughs> And that's just counting players and coaches. I'm not even counting all the other uh, extracurriculars out there that have to take care of the players and, and the coaches, you know? The, right, yeah. The caterers, the, uh, the mm-hmm. trainers, the, uh, the janitorial staff, any, anybody that has to deal with mm-hmm. anything for these players. I mean, you're talking... You know, those people who come and test the people... Yeah, it's nuts. I I don't see how they could logistically do it, but I yeah. I'm not in that bracket to be able to know how. <laughs> no, but I don't see how. It was hard enough for the NBA. Yeah. Hey, real quick, we got about two minutes here, or two minutes, but uh, do y'all think with the expanded playoffs it changes anything with the MLB? I mean, obviously, it changes stuff. It obviously changes because it gives more teams the opportunity to get in. But do you changes think it really, now. Like, yeah. Do you think it affects who, who, like, who moves on, potentially makes a run or anything? Like, do you see anybody potentially getting lucky to make a run to get past the Yankees, Dodgers, you know? I mean, I think you can always say that. I mean, look at the wild card turning into the World Series champion last year. I mean, I mean – um, There's always a I mean, chance. I mean, you look at it. You had uh, yeah. the Marlins just take two of three from the Phillies. They would be moving mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. It's true. Yeah. So true. yes, I think yes. I think you the have format, to. The Phillies are probably going to be a playoff team. Mm-hmm. Shit, if it was a five series or is a five game series, the Dodgers and the Giants are two and two right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Giants win one more up the hair of their chin, 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 and all of a sudden you got a Giants and, you know, fucking Reds World Series or something terrible. <laughs> <laughs> that made Greg happy. 
He goes back and listens. Motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> All right, boys. Favorite things? Oh, yeah. I have mine. Um, so I don't know if you guys heard this story or not, but there was a, a little boy in Wyoming, um, a six-year-old, whose name is Bridger Walker. Uh, he risked his life to save his little sister from a dog attack, um, and he got just torn up. The whole side of his face... It was crazy, but the World Boxing Council uh, awarded him the bravest man on earth and gave him a World Boxing title belt um, for his nice. actions. Just, I thought that was just the cool. I mean, if you, I don't, I'm going to show it to you guys. I don't know if you can see the smile on his face, but I mean, it is. He is just ecstatic. I mean, wow! Look at that belt. That's bigger than he is. <laughs> he also got but, a yeah. shout out from uh, from Captain America himself, Chris Evans. Chris he Evans did. Chris Evans said he was gonna he was gonna send him an official shield or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, this quote cool. about it too. He said if somebody was gonna die, I figured it should be me. And I was like, fuck, <laughs> what? <laughs> what a badass! Oh my god, man, man, holy shit! At six, at six, at so six anyway, years old. Yeah, that's crazy. So I just I thought that was great. Good good job, World Boxing Council. Yeah. Kev, okay, you got anything? I don't know how you can compare to that. Uh, my favorite thing was Lance McCullough Jr. coming back successfully after missing all last year after Tommy John. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kev, correct me if I'm wrong, or not correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, <laughs> I'm blanking on the guy's name. But my favorite thing was I was watching the opener series, uh, Nationals and Yankees, and I'm pretty sure it was, a, it was a Nationals pitcher. It was either a Nationals pitcher or a Phillies pitcher. I'm pretty sure it was Nationals, where they literally showed a highlight of, I think he was a reliever. Um, the dude was in the stands last year catching a home run ball, and now he was pitching for the Nationals or the Yankees. My, it was a, it, anyways, it was a pitcher in the game, but I thought that was really cool. Like, literally, he, they showed, they showed footage, footage of him catching the ball in Yankee Stadium as a home run ball, and he threw it back. And now he was in. He was in the game playing for it. It was either the Nationals or the Yankees. But and I'm blanking on the guy's name. I should have. I should have wrote it down because I was like, that is that is cool. But yeah, that is cool. I didn't catch that. Uh, yeah, that is cool. I'm guessing it'll be Nationals, but just because they were kind of decimated on their yeah. I was trying court, to. But. I was trying to look up his name, but I couldn't find anything. But anyway, shout out to that guy. That's that's really cool. <coughs> All right, boys, well, I guess we can get out of here. Um, for those interested, don't forget to email us if you have any, if you want to contribute to questions of the week. We didn't, we didn't do questions of the week this week because we had Greg. And uh, thank you so much to Greg for joining us again. It was, uh, it was fun talking to him. Hopefully we can get um, that guy's nephew, I guess. It was, what was, it, what was his name? Kenny Miles. Kenny Miles, thank you. Um, but, yeah, thank you to Greg for joining us today. Um, if you want to email and contribute to, to questions of the week, the email is doubleasportshow at gmail.com. Don't forget to uh, follow us on uh, Patreon as well. If you, if, you show, if you think the show has value, please consider joining us on that level. Um, it's P-A-T-R-E-O-N backslash A-A Sports Show. So go, go find us there. You can contribute on a, a few different levels if you want to. Um, and then also follow Alex on the Prospect Times. He's writing for the TLC. Uh, TCL? TCL. Sorry, TCL. Yeah. Um, with the prospect times. When's your next article going to be out? 
Uh, I'll probably have at least a couple coming out here pretty quick. Uh, I have, there's a next series coming home, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, and then they have one more home game after that. Uh, but with the way they're standing now, there's a pretty good chance that they should be able to make it to the postseason. Um, so hopefully I'll be covering them all the way, uh, to the, the TCL championship. All right. I guess next week, but like I said, we can do uh, two weeks worth of the NFL just to catch up on ourselves for a season that probably won't happen. But anyways, all right. Continue to be good out there. Continue to be good out there uh, for yourselves. Um, nowhere out of the woods yet with COVID. Um, we at least have hope because I'm watching, or I was watching baseball on TV right now. But um, yeah, just continue to be good out there. Be smart. Please wear a mask for the love of all that is good in this world. Wear a mask, please. Um, but yeah, be good to yourself. Be good to each other. Don't drink and drive, but do not text and drive. As well as guys, we have all the emails, you have the patrons, but go follow us on the socials, like, and share that. If you find some kind of value, uh, the more fans, the more followers we have, the more likely we can get sponsors Then we can stop asking you for Patreon donations. Uh, but as always guys, look out for your friends, live, carry your own weight, live up to your word. And please, at least for the time being, wear a mask. And I'm going to say this because I saw too many people of this, like this over the weekend. Wear your mask properly. Like <laughs> this. Like <laughs> this. All the way over Not the nose. This. All the way over Not the nose. Not this. Mm-hmm. Not this. Like this. For all you guys listening, over your nose and mouth, please. <coughs> please, 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 please. Anyway. Uh, whether it be enjoying a laugh with your kid, a cold one with your friends, or just listening to your favorite sports podcast, enjoy the little things. And I will say later. Peace. See ya. <laughs> <laughs>